live from the front range of the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Hello, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. This is the Nights of Awakening radio program, and I, of course, your host, Justin Gates. The show is brought to you by KOA Publishing. Thank you so much for joining me today. We're kind of on a roll lately. Uh, This is episode three of the new season. We may have one more tomorrow. I I have to – we'll see where today's show goes. Um, But if we do one tomorrow, it has to be much earlier, and I don't think anybody likes that, especially um, my friend Charles. (laughs) Before we get started, make sure you check out the links in the show description uh, I, I think it'd be down below for you. I'm not sure how you're looking at this or if you're listening to the phone or whatever, but in the show description, we have uh, links that will connect you to us uh, outside of Blog Talk Radio and outside of the shows. Before we begin our discussion on the founding principles, or RRFF for short today, uh, I'm also about halfway through today, we're going to debut. Uh, something new, and I want to preface this by saying it was always my intention to have people um, from all walks of life, as we'll get as you'll hear in a second, share their thoughts with us um, to provide them a platform to air their air their troubles or 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 celebrate their victories or tell us how they feel about the world around them. And finally, finally, someone's taken me up on the offer uh, because on today's show, we will also uh, debut the first episode of a, sh- of a short miniseries called Skywalking. And over the course of the next four um, episodes we do at the Nights of Awakening radio, sh- radio program, we're going to be debuting an episode each time of Skywalking, um, and that's a series by Matt Sechrist. I don't know if you remember, but Matt is the author of the book, The Modern Jedi Knights, A Guide to Health and Happiness, inspired by the masters from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We had Matt on the show about a year ago, year and a half ago, and we talked about his book, and so he sent me for uh, many episodes, and I can't wait for you to hear them because they're really good. So, uh, also on the show from last Sunday, we talked about uh, kind of doing the little things that add up to, to greater things over time. And I put the question out there and asked some folks what they thought that meant uh, and what kind of examples could they give me. Uh, AD over at the KOA discussion group said the easiest is that in all the social spheres that we operate here on Facebook, there will be uh, people will be going through things. If you notice such a person, offer them a spot in your inbox for them to just talk and you just listen. You'd be surprised how much a little bit of advice, or I'm sorry, how much a little bit of active uh, listening can do for somebody. CB uh, says find an operating an operating food pantry. Find out what they need the most and donate. Many have shut down, so we need to help those that are still open. And he also mentioned that we, should, if, if you can, adopt a senior animal from a shelter. And MS uh, says, always be kind and compassionate to those who are sad and lonely. 
always help those who really need it. So I want to bring in uh, my co-host for today, Charles McBride, who is also the host of The Labyrinth. Hello, hello. I am here. Are those birds I hear? Do you have birds now? I don't think you hear birds. I thought I heard a bird just like squawking in the background. <laughs> no. I may, my my Look, fan I may be creating some kind of interference that I can't hear. I, I never know with you because, you know, at times you're Dr. Doolittle. I try. I, I try. I try. <laughs> we don't have birds right now. We we had a bird, a uh, screech owl, a little baby that we took to the rescue place. Uh, we actually network with a a guy over, uh, uh, I don't know where. My wife knows these things. I, 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 I help care for the animals. I don't know anything about the animals. I pet them, feed them, and, you know, once in a while I'll do Reiki on them. But uh, there's a guy about half an hour out who then coordinates with a larger rescue center. So we'll wind up getting birds of all kinds. So far we've managed to save one screech owl, one little bugger that I don't remember what he was. He's angry. He was, a, he was an angry-looking bird. And one raven, one uh, North American raven. Amazingly, we, we had a raven find us. And I was like, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not expected, right? But, yeah, I no birds today. Cool. Cats. Cats. I've got cats. Um, but they're all, they're all staying. And I've got one large hound who is staying, even if she's a pain in my butt. <laughs> Those are the best ones. Well, she's the house security system. There you go. I've got a couple of those. They talk a lot of smack. I don't know if they can do anything in a fight, though. We haven't. Thank God, we haven't had to fight. She out. could. <laughs> she could. She. We. We didn't know she was. Uh, we didn't know she was going to be the kind of dog. We thought she was going to be like scared of everything because, you know, when she was a puppy, she would hide behind the chihuahua, even though she was twice the size, even as a puppy. And then one day, uh, the neighbor's dog got loose in our yard, and we heard this, oh, and I was like, I was like, is that dog coming after ours? And my wife's like, you know, our dog's trying to kill that one. That one's there wagging its tail looking scared. (laughs) I was like, yep, she's a fighter. Like, in her heart, in her docile little heart, in her dumb little head, because she is not smart, there's the, there's like, there's this bruiser, Okay. Speaking of dogs, my dog, Revan, has decided to join us for Yay. today's show. I think she wants to help. Yeah, I have to. You want to help? I have to lock mine up if I say her name. So sure. if I start talking about, sure. like, you know, the aspects of how the shadow influences what we do in our life, she'll come and she'll bark at me because that's her name. <laughs> See, those are little things. We, those we are found little that things out fast. To help the world be a little better for, for some some of some of the creatures. All right, well, let's get into it uh, today. As I said, we're going to talk about the KOA's founding principles. I'm going to start. I mean, this is probably going to be at least two episodes long, maybe three. It just depends. But I want to take my time with these, and I also want to be able to offer up some time at the end. Um, even if it's just uh, 20 minutes or so for anyone who's listening who wants to call in and give us some thoughts on, on the topics. 
these are very near and dear to my heart, and I know Charles feels the same way too because Charles helped me come up with these, um, as did Allie, who's not with us today. Maybe she's listening out there in the in the ether somewhere. All right, so I don't know if many of you know this, but the KOA actually started on this platform in 2009, May of 2009. Um, and when it was built uh, here and founded, it was really just supposed to be a media platform. And that's, for the most part, that's what it's it stayed, but, but we have bigger ambitions. We are working towards much larger things than that. But when it was built back then, I had once said that we have a responsibility to ourselves and to others to be open, to be as honest and open as we can be at all times. To have respect for uh, respect for others, to share their point of view, regardless of whether we agree with them or not. Fairness to those seeking a place to share their views with a larger world, as long as they're not promoting hate, cruelty, or other heinous acts or ideas. Your family, whether that is blood or chosen, is the bond that connects our hearts to the rest. Your brother and sister to your left and right will stand beside you through thick and thin. When one of us falls, two come and pick us back up. So the founding principles start with responsibility. Now, I don't – there's – many of you take take the, the idea of the night uh, in different degrees, all the way up from a passing interest to the ideals of the nights, all the way up to a very serious level of – practice and understanding uh, almost to the point of it being a job for many people. So I like to think that when you take on this vocation of knighthood, you take on several new and challenging responsibilities that are on top of the responsibilities you have in your life already. Those responsibilities may have been thrust upon you, but the, the responsibility of walking this path of knighthood is one that you should never take lightly, and it brings with it, understand, it brings with it many more responsibilities. So you have to, you have to be, be ready for that. Uh, when we started this, it was an absolute must that the cornerstone of everything we tried to accomplish out in the world was built upon the idea of responsibility. Now, someone who takes on the mantle uh, or walks this path seriously of a night is held to a higher standard of behavior. They should, you should be high, holding yourself to that higher standard, but others around you, especially those who are walking this path alongside you, are also going to be holding you to a higher standard of behavior, and they should. So, because, and the thing is, because you're not going to be just on everything you do, but everyone else that you're associated with who, again, is walking this, this kind of similar path is going to be judged alongside you. And likewise, everything they do, you may be judged for everything they're doing too. This higher standard, as I said, it needs to come from within. It needs to come from you. And it needs to come from you in, in a way that it reveals itself in everything you do every single day. When you choose to take on this task to do better every day and to be better every day, it makes life more challenging but far more rewarding in the end. 
uh, you need to be accountable to every choice, every action, and every outcome. It can and will be a struggle for the entirety of your life as long as you choose to walk this path. And if you want to walk this path, honestly. But without the burden of responsibility, being a knight or walking this path has no real impact on the world, in my opinion. And it's nothing more than just some empty title that some people use to make them feel special. What do you think, Charles, about the well, I, the, the, the idea of the knights, no matter what flavor of knights, there's lots of different flavors. We'll talk about that probably eventually, but how serious should, should, should we take this uh, if we actually want to do good? And, and what, how, how important is responsibility uh, to do that? Well, I think it's the core of it ultimately. I think what separates a knight from a lot of other people um, so let's break this down uh, into some pop culture references here because we know we love those. It makes it easier to understand. You know, the concept of a knight also centers around kind of like the idea of a paladin in role-playing games versus your normal fighter or your normal mystic or what have you. Well, for the knight, we do have a strong bend towards spirituality. Some of us stronger than others. Some of us more in the mystical side of things. We do have a strong connection to the physical. It's one of those things that definitely is a big part of our mind or our day-to-day, you know, at least knowing how to do things like defend ourselves, even if we don't ever get pushed into a situation where we have to, having a game plan to deal with crisis. Now, those, those two little things right there, so then what separates the paladin or the knight from just your wandering mystic or your your fighter, your bruiser in a bar. Well, at the end of the day, it's the social contract. And the knight recognizes that the social contract is foundational to a better world. A social contract is an idea that's been batted around for hundreds of years now, maybe even thousands of years, to be honest. I I would have to uh, grab a bunch of notes and information to hit on the specifics of the social contract. But it's been around for a very long time, the idea of it. And the core of it is that we have a responsibility to each other as individuals by operating in society, because so long as we're all operating in the society together, it is benefiting all of us. Now, a good example of this is that as someone who's working right now, I am making money through my home business, And then I'm spending that money, which is benefiting other people who are doing work, and also through the taxes that are collected is benefiting people that are unable to work in such a way that when this is all knitted together, we don't have a dire need for anyone to go out and commit crimes to survive, and we don't have a dire need to uh, hurt each other in order to better ourselves. And that's part of the social contract. The social contract also goes into the idea, if I see someone beat up and, you know, in the middle of the road, I have a duty to investigate and to attempt to render some kind of aid up to the degree that in doing this doesn't endanger my safety beyond a reasonable measure. 
And for the night, we often go beyond that reasonable measure because we see the social contract, the idea underneath of it, as so important. We recognize that if you leave that person there hurt and they die, that impacts five other people connected to them. And I'm, I'm just going to use the number five because five multiplication table is easy. So that affects five more people who then are affecting five more people. So you, by leaving that one person there hurt, if they die or if they suffer, the burden has went from being a burden on five people to 25 people. And then those 25 people pass on a lesser burden even to 125 people. And this, this gets to be a really big number in a really short period of time. You know, 125 doesn't sound like a lot, but then those, those 125 pass that on and that becomes 625. That is a tremendous impact. From, and that's just, what, uh, three, four, four uh, pass-down links, as were, of not rendering that aid and not investigating and not doing anything about it. By the same token, I'm not saying run out there into every fire or do everything you're not ready or equipped to do. I'm not putting that on people. I'm saying for a night, our first reaction and impulse is to do that. And it's going to sound really funny. I'm not even going to say that we're always happy to do it. We recognize that we carry a bit of a burden, that we're going to do the right thing even when it doesn't feel right, even when it feels like a pain in the butt, and it's just like, no, I, I would rather be doing anything else but this right now, because we recognize that, that impact is bigger than just what we're doing at any one moment. And again, that's part of that social contract. We recognize that that social contract covers a large part of the world in a deeper way and that the ramifications of it are exponentially greater than we could have recognized. You know, the example of the guy on the road, that sounds like a simple one because you could call for an ambulance, you could call for the police to check on him and do a wellness check. You know, hey, I got a guy on the road here. Uh, you know, he looks to be breathing, not sure if he's setting a trap for someone. Or if he's hurt, but could you send someone to take a look? You know, even that simple action where you're not even putting yourself in danger, a lot of people will pass by that. And it's not that they're necessarily bad people. This is going to sound really funny. To define good and bad in that way is an oversimplification. They are people that are preoccupied with what's good for them, where the knight recognizes that that social contract not just benefits them, or not just benefits the world, but it also benefits them eventually in the long run. But we're not doing it for that benefit. We recognize that, oh, I, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change my mind on that. I'm going to say we are doing it for that benefit because we recognize that if people don't do that, if we don't do that, we will soon live in a world of really anarchy, chaos, and lack of humanity where – no one would have done that for us, but also where more basic courtesies and kindnesses and right actions have been thrown away because the rest of the world has seen that there's no purpose to it, even though what they don't realize is that the evolution into that much worse world came as a result of not taking the steps to prevent it. So the night sees that bigger picture. And this is part of that introspection that I'm always, always preaching about for people 
And if you've listened to my shows, you've heard me say it a thousand times about needing to be self-aware, needing to look inward, needing to be aware of how we operate. But we have to be aware of the bigger picture, too. And we recognize that it is the actions of knights and knightly people. So even if you're not taking on that mantle of knight, even if you're not putting that burden on yourself, you may still be knightly. You may still be the best knight out there. You just don't make that your focus. It's not how you define yourself. But if it wasn't for those people, our world would be disastrous. It would be a terrible place to live. You know, we have a lot of laws that regulate a lot of things to keep us civil towards each other. But a lot of things are done that have nothing to do with the law that are a matter of civility, like not standing in front of doorways. You know, there's no law about blocking a, an area as a throughway so that someone has to go around if there's an option to go around. There's law, I think there's laws that uh, impeding a person's movement if there's no other passage, but as long as there's a way around. But in civility, we step out of the way for people all the time. And that's, that's, a, that's a small thing, but that small thing hinges on those bigger things having been done so that as a society, we don't believe that there is no good, there is no right, there is no compassion uh, in the world at large. And it's, you see it happen to people, though, too. That's the other factor is that that responsibility comes from having seen what happens when responsibility isn't taken and what it does to people over time. Every every night out there can give you at least a dozen stories of having met someone who the part of society that is not taking responsibility broke them in a way where they just see the world as a cruel, nasty place and they're a cruel, nasty person. And oftentimes the night will reach out to try to help that person. And then, you know what? We get our hands bit a fair enough period uh, for that. It's what we do. We recognize that importance because we don't want to live in a world of cruelty and dishonor and disdain. We want to live in that better world. And it's not that we're idealistic or delusional in thinking that we can change it all by ourselves. We've seen the results of what one good act can do. And we recognize that if we're always doing those good acts, the world itself gets better over time. And a lot of that comes, look, this, this path, this path, similar paths, we're, we're laying the groundwork down, uh, almost a, found, a, a basic foundation that many paths can walk upon because what it really comes down to is choosing and accepting those consequences of choices, good, bad, or other. This is why we call the, the quote-unquote virtues uh, agreements. Because it's something you have to agree to. Nobody can be forced to take steps that I don't think so anyway. I don't think anybody can be forced to be humanitarian, somebody who serves humanity beyond some personal personal uh, goals or whatever. When we, when, we, when we think about choice as it relates to responsibility, you're choosing to behave and behave in a way that puts you in this role and it puts you in, in a category that uh, 
can be hard, it can be difficult. Yeah, you will fall and slip, and uh, as you said earlier, it's uh, not something we want to do sometimes, but we did make that choice. That's not always nice. Sometimes it's awesome. But when you make this choice, and you make this choice without understanding, without having a deep awareness of who you are and what controls the undercurrents, uh, what shapes and molds your life, a great deal of confusion will follow. We we shouldn't make these choices lightly. We should understand there are consequences to everything. Uh, And I want to clarify that I'm talking about those conditions and situations that are within our control. Uh, For example, even if you believe in God or destiny or fate or the force, there's still room for the concept of free will within all of these beliefs. For for some, not not so. Uh, And I know there's a bunch of different little kind of categories under each of these things too. But in my view, there is room for free will. There's room for the concept. Uh, Within this idea of free will comes the concept of choice and consequence. By having enough awareness and forethought when confronted with the choice, you will have better control of the direction things go once that choice is made. And if you don't have, you know, quote-unquote control, you at least have an understanding of where a particular choice may lead you and you're better prepared. You should never make choices lightly. I posted something on the page earlier. Um, Let me find it real quick. I posted something. Um, I posted an old KOA meme, picture of an old KOA meme that has uh, Morpheus with the two pills, the red and blue pill, and underneath it says, Nights of Awakening, Choices, Choices, Choices. And above that, I posted a quote that your choices should come from a place deeper than your loyalties. Uh, and I got a couple of interesting, you know, comments on that. But really, the point of that was understanding that there are no pills and that you always have a choice and how you, to how you react and how you see and how you interpret the world outside, you know. Everybody says there's only two pills. Well, there really are no pills, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and with, with, with enough self-awareness, you'll understand that. But not choosing is also a choice, right? Uh, and you're better prepared with this, with, with having enough awareness and forethought. You're better prepared because you've really already comp- contemplated and calculated as many possible outcomes as you can, and uh, on the show yesterday, David's uh, new show, Experiments in Mind, we talk about critical thinking, and I think after we do the, uh, I want to do a a show on critical thinking, a short one, critical thinking, because this really kind of falls into that too. Uh, But you'll calculate possible outcomes for a choice that you make or don't make. Remember, even not making a choice is still making a choice. The responsibility lies in this aspect, that making a choice already understanding that a consequence, like I said, good or bad, will follow that you will have to stand by. You need to, if you make choices, you need to stand by the choices. Um, this, this, and then, of course, this, this gets me into your word is your bond. But we'll see, uh, give Charles a, a chance here to talk about choices. Charles, how does... 
how much of a role does this uh, responsibility play in the choices we make? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that my mentor said to me. And again, this, is, this guy was a crazy wizard, literally a crazy wizard, uh, literally crazy, literally a wizard. Um, and he said the worst part of being a wizard or a mystic was that you are responsible for everything. And I freaked out. That's a, that's a hell of a burden. And then it kind of hit me. You know, he, he was real big on language. He said, you need to break down the word responsible. You are response-able. You're able to respond. You're able to also not respond. And, you know, I've, I've really diverged from his teachings a lot because I'm not crazy. Um, and I'll, everyone's a little crazy. I'm not his particular brand of crazy. His brand of crazy works for him, so I'm, not, I'm definitely not putting down what the man does or did in his life. But what I am saying is that while I've branched away a lot of from using language to that degree where every single word has to be that precise, responsibility is one that I've kind of kept in that because every choice you make, you are able to respond to what's going on or to not respond. That's a choice too. You are you are responsible in every single choice for your action and for what level of outcome that you could foresee reasonably. But you're also responsible to some degree then for every outcome beyond that. And this this is really difficult for people because humans have a tendency to like boxes. We like categories. We like to call the big rock quartz and the small rock uh, tourmaline, even though technically they both are quartz composite of some level. We, we want that. We want that ability to put things in different boxes. Uh, as a side note, uh, something like 80% of all the different crystals that are out there are quartz with an inclusion. Uh, people don't know that because they don't want to know the uh, atomic structure of things, but Back to the responsibility, I had to sidetrack to make the tourmaline statement make sense for people. So we like boxes, and we like to be able to say, I I did good, or I messed up, instead of saying, you know, hey, I did good up to this level of events, but then things after spiraled out, and I have some level of responsibility because of that, but because it's this far removed, I'm not necessarily either able or willing to take responsibility for these extended results. And I'm going to use my line of work, and then I'm going to use your line of work as an example of this. Uh, I'm a practicing mystic. Justin is in law enforcement. So as a practicing mystic, if I pass an attunement on to someone or show them a spell or create a talisman for them, I'm responsible up to the degree of teaching them how it works, and giving any warnings thereof, kind of like being a gun salesman in a lot of ways. I, I, I got to be like, hey, you know, make sure you do this. This one, you know, is a little a little uh, shaky if it gets wet. You know, whatever warning I need to give, or maybe maybe the safety uh, takes an extra half second to depress. Whatever warning is there, I've got to give it. That shows you how little I know of guns because it, it just hit me that there's probably very few guns right now that get wet and stop completely. But hey, there, there's some older models that do. So we'll go with it. 
um, you know, it's my responsibility to know enough to pass that on and to pass that on, to give any warnings. And I'll tell you, in my job, I, I give a lot of warnings. I give warnings to people. I'll say, hey, uh, maybe this service wouldn't be right for you. You know, you're wanting to pack. Packs are a very long-term thing. They have big repercussions. You know, I don't ever recommend packs, but I leave the service up because I feel that people should have a right to choose on it. I would recommend a talisman to you. And they say, well, a pack sounds like it's a lot more powerful. I'm like, eh, sort of, sort of. It's definitely more intense in its own way, but I'm still telling you this can have a lot of long-term repercussions. Now, after that is done, if they go with getting a pack and it starts to have a negative repercussion, which I warned on, I'm not responsible to undo that, but I am responsible to provide good advice on what they should do next because it is something coming from me. I don't have to be the hero on every single event. Now, in your line of work, if you arrest someone, you're responsible to follow all the procedures of law and right action. You are not, however, responsible to prevent them from doing the crime again, whatever it was. But in that responsibility, that next level of responsibility if they're asked, if they, if they look at you while you're bringing them in, they're like, you know, how do I get into this mess and what do I got to do to stop from happening? You've got the life experience in dealing with this. You are responsible to give them whatever information you have that could help them. You're not responsible to call them up on the phone three weeks later and give it to them without them asking. You're not responsible to come up to their door with a with a care packet of information you prepared for them because that is now extended outside of your sphere of influence, which is what you can deal with on a day-to-day basis. And let's take that sphere of influence idea and let's take it down to what you can do as a human being, still be human, still live a life, still be functional, still have downtime to where you can let your brain cycle off a bit so that you're not always on duty. With all of that, you can only do so much. But yeah, in that moment, you're responsible to give them that information and that aid because it doesn't contrast your job and your existing oath, it fulfills the core of them. Just as in the mystical side, you know, I have that responsibility. If they say, well, this is not going the way I wanted, what would you recommend? I have a responsibility to respond with the best information I have and the best suggestions that I can give. I'm not responsible for what choice they make next with it. If they say, well, you know, I don't think your uh, your analysis of this is accurate. I'm not responsible for that, what they do next. You're, I'm able to respond, though. Uh, I'm able to do something at that point and respond to that. I could. I could hound them. I could talk to them. I could refuse services from my shop in the future. I have a lot of options at that point. And to be fair, as a mystic, I have a lot of options that go unsaid at any point. You know, I always have the options of doing some kind of spell work either for or on the person outside of their permission, which I don't do, but I could. I'm able to respond, but I'm not responsible. It's it's outside that sphere. And I think the thing with responsibility in that in that respect, we've got to recognize that there are layers to it. There are extended layers. And while those actions do butterfly effect a lot, everything we do, we have to have a cutoff point. It needs to be a vague. It needs to be vague because 
your instinct, your heart, your compassion needs to be reined in with your reason and logic, but your reason and logic has to be tempered by that compassion and that, that instinct so that you can take each situation holistically. Allie is going to love me now. I just used her word. Okay. Right now she's fangirling if she's listening. If not, she will fangirl later. But you take that holistically so that you take into account all of the factors as to your place in the situation and the other person's place in the situation, what impact this is going to have on you helping them and what impact it's going to have on, on them by you helping them. So you, you have to take all of that and then, then decide if this is your fight, if this is the hill that you're going to fight on or the hill that you're going to die on, as they, as they uh, say. The biggest problem I see with people with responsibility is a two, two-sided part. One, they limit their sphere of responsibility to just their immediate action. So any repercussion falls outside their realm of responsibility. And really, it's an excuse to put a token mark down like I did the best that I should have to do. You know, I did my best because I can mark that I did what I was responsible to up to the first level. So if that first level is just immediate action responsibility. And then I see the extreme of that where people were like, well, because I took this person in when they were homeless once and it's been five years and they've gotten into drugs and they're back on doing whatever. I've got to take them in again and, you know, pay for their rehab and all this because I'm responsible since I helped them once. No, that's five years. That's, that's the 10th, 20th, 50th degree removed of responsibility. They've had a lot of interactions between them and made choices outside of your decisions. Now, if they ask you, you know, do you know any programs to get clean and you know of one? Yeah, you're responsible to inform them. You shouldn't look at them and be like, yeah, but I ain't telling you. That's, you know... That's being uh, a real prick. And I think a lot of people use the word responsibility as an opportunity to go to that first level and then not go beyond. But I think a lot of people also let it become a, a crushing weight because they feel that everything they've ever interacted in is now their responsibility to make right. And you can't do that. You will it's not just that you'll fail. You'll, you'll fail. Don't get me wrong. You will. I know. I've done it. You're, you're not going to get around that failing part. It's not just that you'll fail, though, but in your failures, you will often make things worse, and you will lose the ability to help others because you won't have the time, the mental resources, the physical energy, the financial resources, just everything that goes into helping people, you won't have because you have used it up trying to correct every single permutation of what happened after you interacted. So you've got to draw those lines, but you've got to, you've got to, you've got to humble those lines in such a way that you do not underreach and you do not overreach. It, it's like, it's like setting down a meal on your plate. There's a, there's a certain amount you can eat that fills you up. There's a certain amount you can eat that makes you full. There's a certain amount you can eat that makes you over full. There's a certain amount that you can eat that makes you sick or a certain amount you eat that makes you hung, that leaves you hungry. And you've got to figure that out when you make a plate up. 
you've got to figure that out when you go and do an exercise. There's so many reps you can do. Do too few reps and you gain nothing. You wasted a few seconds of your life. Do too many and you destroy the muscle. You rip tendons. You damage the body beyond repair. Reason has to be the guiding light of responsibility measured with compassion. So you have to balance that, that logic, that compassion, that reason. Otherwise, you wind up running off a cliff trying to save everyone or sitting and making your justification for saving no one. That, that's kind of my view. I don't know if that answered the question perfectly, but that's the direction it kind of sent me, sent me traveling in. And as, and as I've said many times, if you have to justify thoughts or actions, then you're probably not coming from the place of right action. Because if we're doing the right thing, we don't need to justify it. That becomes righteousness, which is bad. The ability to choose is our greatest strength, as far as I'm concerned, and, and is the truest, truest measure of freedom. Uh, it doesn't always only affect what happens inside of us, but that also permeates to the world around us as well, especially if we can inspire that in other people, the, the ability to choose and, and help people understand just how powerful that really is. But with those choices, we have to, again, we have to understand there are consequences, good, bad, or other. And not making a choice also comes with consequences that you may or may not have any control over. My rule of thumb is I, I, I'd rather make a choice than be taken for a ride because I decided not to make the choice. But you back those choices up with your word. As we say, your word is your bond. Speaking the truth is paramount when living a life of integrity and honesty, which is, again, one of the foundational things for this path. But it's important to understand that this generally breaks down to two different understandings, quote-unquote truth which is very subjective, of course, and quote-unquote honesty, which is more linear. It's, it, it's less subjective. It's, if you're being honest with somebody, you know, it's, it's kind of, it is what it is. Truth, on the other hand, is kind of this subjective thing for many of us, depending on the totality of our life experiences, uh, our, our, our moral backgrounds, our, you know, all these different things, a lot of things. And we may get into that today or not, but uh, you know, truth is more subjective than honesty. Being honest and open is the hallmark of someone who walks this path of knighthood. It shows strong character. Others see it and allows others to more easily trust you, especially if you're known for always being honest and trustful. That's not something that happens overnight. That's something that you develop over time with people. And you can only develop that by being honest all the time. And at times, it takes a great deal of courage to speak honestly with those in our lives. Especially, look at the way the world is now. It's really, it's hard for a lot of people, on, depending, you know, no matter what side of any of these arguments you're on, it takes a lot of courage sometimes to speak uh, honestly because it puts you in direct opposition with family, friends, people who you were allied with allied with, uh, sometimes it puts you in opposition to whole groups of people that you don't even know because you're being as honest as you can. It takes, it takes a lot of courage, especially in these days that we're, we're up against. 
being honest, as great of a character trait as it is, also comes with responsibilities. You should, really shouldn't be using the guise of honesty to intentionally hurt people also. And we're seeing a lot of that today, too. Uh, but, you know, with that being said, sometimes you can't help to hurt somebody you love because the truth, your honesty, has to be shared. Henry Ward Beecher said, it is one of the severest tests of friendship to tell your friend his faults. To so love a man that you cannot bear to see a stain upon him and to speak painful truth through loving words, that is friendship. So, standing by your word, honoring your word, really is, at the end of the day, it really is kind of, you're, you're, you made a choice, you're going to honor that choice, you're going to honor those consequences, you're going to take it, you're going to stand by it, you're going to be honest about it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're stuck with those choices forever, because we do grow. I uh, proposed something interesting to David uh, a couple weeks ago, where we're going to take tidbits of our old shows um, from the past 11 years that we've done together, and we're going to break them up into kind of you know key points. And David and I are going to listen to those shows. We're going to listen to those little points live along, along with you. And then we're going to have to try and react to see if we still believe the things we believe, that we believed then. So, you know, making a choice, and I have a feeling that a lot of those are going to be different because I, I, I feel like I've grown over the last 11 years. I'm sure David has too. So it'll be, it'll be fun to see that. But the point is, if you make a choice, you accept those consequences, you've weighed and measured all the things, you, you're happy with whatever happens, you have to stand by that, at least in the short term. Eventually, you can change your mind. You should, you should always be seeking to find new things. You should always be doing what we call taking an inventory and then taking out the trash. If, things don't, if ideals don't serve you anymore, uh, then you should be uh, replacing them. But choices in the more practical sense, uh, if you choose to act, for example, versus not choosing to act, um, if you choose to, the example Charles gave, you, if you choose to approach the man laying in the ditch uh, to render aid, there, there are consequences for that. Um, there probably be okay consequences, but maybe he grabs you or whatever. Uh, as, long as, you're, as long as you're comfortable with standing by what you've chosen, then you're doing the best you can. How much time we got left? Let's see here. You know what? Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and air the first episode of Skywalking with Matt Segrist. We're going to go ahead and air that, and uh, we'll be back uh, in about seven minutes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Skywalking. My name is Matt Seacrest, and today I'm going to be your host as we discuss the Jedi, knighthood, warriors, and spirituality, and how it all relates to the modern parentheses Jedi and parentheses knight. First off, I'd like to thank the Knights of Awakening, and specifically Stacy and Justin, for reaching out to me and inviting me to record and share my perspectives on the path that I and others have chosen. Many of you may 
know me already through some online interactions, but to those of you who don't, here's a quick resume. I was six years old when I first saw Star Wars in the movie theater all the way back in 1977. That day I walked out of the movie theater knowing that I wanted to be a pilot when I grew up. Strangely enough, though, I wanted to be more of a Han Solo than a Luke Skywalker at the time. Fast forward now, and I did achieve that goal of being a pilot, as I've been flying for over 30 years, and I'm an airline pilot, uh, captain based in Denver, Colorado, on an Airbus A320, and I live uh, in town with my wife, three children, and too many dogs. But what started me down this crazy Jedi path in the first place? The short story, or as short as I can make it, is that uh, we're watching The Phantom Menace in 1999 and just being truly amazed by the Jedi and their prime. A few years later, while on vacation at Disney World, I saw my first master replica's lightsaber, and I knew I needed to have one. One led to two, two led to three. I, I couldn't keep track of how many I have right now. Um, as the other prequel movies came out, I began to play around with my lightsaber, having duels with my children in the front yard, working on the flourishes, brandishing, and spins. During one of those sessions, an innocent little thought popped into my head. What if the Force was real? Quick backtrack to the 1980s. My family didn't go to church until after my parents had separated, and my mom met the man who would eventually become my stepfather. Together they would load my brother and I into the car and we would leave Lincoln, Nebraska and drive out into the country to a small Lutheran church that was surrounded by farmland. I was a good boy for a while. I went through confirmation and all the good stuff, sang along in church. But as time went on, the more and more time I spent in church and the more I listened and read, the more questions I had. And the answers that they provided just didn't make a lot of sense to me, and the questions kept on mounting. I ended up uh, stopped going to church when I was 15 and never really thought about religion or spirituality until that thought popped into my head about the force a couple decades later. Back in the early 21st century, with the Internet becoming widely available and with more content showing up, I just started searching to learn what the origins of the Jedi, the lightsaber, and George Lucas's mysterious and all-powerful force was. In learning about the lightsaber, I was introduced to the Samurai Knights and other warrior classes. Focusing on the Samurai, I learned how they balanced their warrior profession with religion, philosophy, artistic practices, and education. From that knowledge, I was introduced to many different religions and philosophies from all over the world, pretty much is. Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Shinto, and other forms of Christianity, along with other such philosophies as uh, Vedanta, Stoicism, psychology, and other subjects. Now, you have to remember, I grew up in uh, our world's own little version of Tatooine. If there was a bright spot in the universe, I was on the planet, more in the state that it's the farthest from, so I got a little bit of a late start. I started meditating, learning martial arts, and becoming a voracious reader of books and the content of online Jedi schools. 
soon realized I had thoughts, views, experiences, and perspectives that didn't match up with the online community. It was at that point I thought maybe I should document my path and share with others in the form of a book because I thought I had something good to share. In addition to all the other training I was doing, I started on the book, writing it, and quickly realized that I may, while I may have some unique interpretations, I was nowhere ready or far enough along to share a cohesive story and plan with others. So I started a website and began doing almost daily chronicles of thoughts, ideas, evaluations of current events, and stories as a way to work through the content and to get the reactions of others. A decade later, in April 2016, I released my book, don't be in a rush to go out to Amazon and buy it as I'm working on a revised and expanded edition. Uh, I'd like to have it released sometime within the next year. Since that time, my thoughts have led me down a path where I no longer feel that the title of Jedi was working out positively for me. I kept having questions and was trying too hard to make my thoughts fit into the movie instead of answering my own questions or heeding my own instincts. I felt that I was still clinging too tightly to the fiction of the story instead of its underlying concepts. Because even if it is canon, it is still fiction. And many, if not all, the other great stories of warriors are also fiction. The stories of Jesus, Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, and others are all filled with miraculous stories of grandeur and exaggeration when I feel they were just ordinary people who had some insight into the world. And that brings us to now. I understand not everyone will agree with me, and I hope you realize that I'm not trying to insult or dismiss what your thoughts are. I just want us all to work together and have a discussion and a dialogue, or I think we'll realize that even though we call everything by different names, we're still talking about the same thing. So there you have it. It's from this beginning that the rest of my episodes will come from. I hope you have found it interesting, and we'll come back for my next episode of Skywalking, where we will turn the act of being a Skywalker into a verb of action. May the force of others be with you. All right, that was Matt Segrist. Uh, again, if you want to hear his whole interview with us, I believe it's over at the YouTube page, uh, which is in the show description link to our YouTube channels in the show description. Uh, also, so those of you who have been with us for a really long time, there used to be a lot more shows in the blog talk radio kind of queue thing there. Well, when we took a break a few years ago, I didn't realize that blog talk radio had changed their, their um, policies on how much can be stored in your account. And they pretty much gave us the ultimatum to um, take them off or they'll be just deleted. So I, I went back through and, captured every show we've ever done and saved it onto my computer so that, you know, they wouldn't be lost. Uh, slowly but surely, adding more shows, some of the, 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 it's, it's at least the more, the more popular shows over the years, back into the Blog Talk Radio um, page here. But tune in next week, and uh, we'll have another episode of Skywalking. Charles, it's it's really hard sometimes to honor our word, but it's it, it's one of the biggest responsibilities we have. You should say what you mean, mean what you say. Uh, try not to hurt people. 
for the sake of hurting them, but always being honest or as honest as you can. What do you think about the, the, the ideal of your word is your bond? That's a, that's a tough one. Um, and partially it's a tough one because on the one hand, I honor it probably 99.9% of the time. Not real big myself on lying. Um, in fact, I've trained myself to lie as little as possible, which gets me into a lot of trouble with people. <laughs> uh, if someone's cooking something and I don't like it and I taste it, I go, yeah, this really isn't for me. I don't just eat it and go, oh, yeah, that's great. I, I'm like, no, you know, this is a little underdone here or overdone or the spices weren't to my liking, which is, a, is, is not culturally acceptable, okay? Let me tell you that. Um, but on the other side of that, I've also found myself in situations where in order to protect someone, I've had to give them a false promise. Oh, yeah, I will not go to the police on this. I will not uh, inform, you know, someone about what's going on here, knowing that as I made my word at that moment that I intended to break it all for, in all four seconds but that I needed the information to keep the person safe. So I'm going to split this into two, two parts. There is your, your word as it is most of the time, your word as it is normally, and then there's your word in, in extenuating circumstances when you're effectively having to play a role in order to achieve a, uh, a higher good, if you will. Normally, if your word is your bond and you're honest all the time, People come to trust that, and they learn to respect it. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone I've broken my word to, even on simple things, even like when my wife says, well, I need you to promise not to do something again. I'll say, I can't make that promise. I can promise to make the effort. I can promise to make the attempt. I can promise to do the best that I can but I also know that if it's like a word that I've said that, you know, reminds her of something, that without reinforcing that every single day, the way my brain works, it will stumble that descriptive word, whatever it is, um, not harsh words. I mean just words that you might not think would affect someone because of possible childhood trauma or things like that, you know. So I won't make a promise to do that because that promise has meaning and weight and I'm not in an extenuate, that's the word I'm looking for, extenuating circumstances. I'm, I'm outside of an extenuating circumstance. However, if I have someone who has a gun to my head and they say, well, I, I need you to promise not to call the cops and I'll let you go, I will honor the highest of, of the Norse gods, Odin, also known as Oathbreaker, and I will swear on a stack of that person's Bibles, because they don't mean that much to me being Norse, that I will not go back on my word, and I won't for five seconds uh, until such time as it is clear to drop the entire weight of the police force uh, upon that person. Uh, and in a town this size, that actually is considerably greater than what you would expect. So... This is one of those things where it, it's really, and this shows you how honest I am. 
This shows you how, how seriously I take this, that I'm honest to make this statement about it. I'm honest. To tell, I'm, I'm so honest that I've got to tell you that I'll be dishonest from time to time. But if you don't conduct, conduct yourself as honest at least most of the time, at least the vast majority, that 99.9, then your word has no meaning. And then you can't be counted upon when you say you're going to do something or be somewhere or what have you. And I think it's important to recognize that there's a big difference between honesty among equals and among people and honesty in extenuating circumstances upon which being honest could cost lives or worse even. It's a, it's a really difficult subject for me to approach because it's an uncomfortable one because I don't even like that I am dishonest when it's for the right reason. But I recognize that given that at the end of the day, every action is one that we have to take into accord with how we see the end result at the end of a day. Uh, to give a, a really good example um, if someone contacts me and wants information that I don't feel they should have, uh, rather I will either tell them I can't give them the information or I will refuse to communicate. And I've actually had to do that in business situations where I've had someone who wanted to, uh, a, a good example was they wanted to, do, to put a curse on another person who had been a client. And I knew this person, the other person well enough to know they hadn't done anything to deserve what was being uh, attempted to be visited upon. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they said, well, uh, I need you to make sure that you don't tell them. I said, okay. And why would, why would I break my word on that at that moment? Because I know that this other person who has done nothing wrong, even having been said to have done nothing wrong by the first person, they just didn't take away something was said to them appropriate and they wanted to uh, go high holy hell upon them is now in danger potentially for their life because not everyone's going to be as moral as I am and say, no, I don't do curses to begin with. I don't do curses for money. And I certainly don't do curses on customers that I've already had, because if I do, they come back to me and want me to be the guy who does the protection work. And I, I, I can't, I, I can't juggle that. My, my morality is flexible up to the degree that it stops being flexible. And it, that's, it stops somewhere before that point, like way before. But that's way beyond the point of flexibility. Um, but in that, knowing that this could cause someone a risk of their life, yeah, I'm going to let them know someone's gunning for them. I'm not going to give exact names, and I didn't give exact names, but I'm going to say, look, you've got someone who asked me to do some work on you. And uh, if I were you, I would uh, take the skills, because they, they've learned uh, some defensive techniques from me. I said I'd definitely start implementing those and, uh, you know, put your guards up. And they did, and they're Okay. You know, long story short, uh, I also told the first person that if they continued to pester me in an effort to get me to do work, I said I wasn't going to, that they would be blocked. They are. They're one of three people to be banned from my store. Uh, it's, it's not a lot. It's not a lot of times that can happen, but it does. I guess I feel like I, I spiral sometimes when I talk. My point is that there is no, there is no honor when you're being pushed into a statement. There's no, there's no 
you cannot give your word unfreely, nor can you give your word in an extenuating circumstance and expect that your word has been given. Honestly, if I, this would never happen, but if I were to go to the point where I was going to kill someone tomorrow, I wouldn't call Justin up and go, hey, you know, man, I got this situation, I'm about to do this thing, but I need you to promise not to tell anyone before I told him what it was. Because Justin's known me for years, Justin trusts me, he would probably go, yeah, I promise, without thinking about it, because he trusts me as a person to never ask this of him, and then ask this of him. That's not a promise he can keep. That would be that would be causing him to take his, his greater oaths to the world, to responsibility for people and for safety, over a factor of honesty. So to make this a little simpler, one cannot be honest without first being honest with himself about what honesty means. Now, if it's an oath that I can that I can hold myself to and I'm speaking in earnest and I'm dealing with a friend or an ally, you can bet I will be the most honest person you have ever met. If I'm dealing with an enemy, and I've had enemies in my life, very few and far between, but every once in a while, you can bet that I will be as honest as I can be while not giving up anything like a tactical advantage. And beyond that, I will not be honest. And I'm very honest about that. Um, I'd actually like to get your view on that response too, Justin, and hit back and forth because this is one. This would be good for people to see some some of our, uh, our how how we go through these discussions because you might you and I've had this discussion like 18 times, and even what it means to when you give your word and then not be able to hold to it, what that means, like when you've hit the limit of what your word can do, and that's one that's always rough for me because I'll be like I'm going to do this, and it it's rare that I don't, but when I fail, like if I say I'm going to be somewhere tomorrow and my foot gives out. No, I'll walk on crutches. But, like, if both of my feet give out, then I'll walk on crutches with, like, a little seat with a wheel on it. But if both of my feet and my arms give out, what kind of fight did I get into? Uh, As I'm trying to drag myself along, I might not make it to that place because the time it takes to load my heavy set rear end into a car when my arms aren't working and my legs aren't working and I'm pulling myself by my teeth, I just might not show up on time. And that's breaking my word, and it kills me, even though every effort has then been extended. Because that's not me acting in an extenuating circumstance. That's me acting as the most genuine self. So I want to, I want to get your thoughts on it, because I know we talked about that, too. You know, you've run into it. I've run into it. It, it kills us. You give our word and then not be able to keep it. But also, what about extenuating circumstances? I want your thoughts. I think we actually did a whole we did a whole show on promises. We did part of a show or a show that we were involved in turned into a discussion on promises. I think we did a whole show on honoring your word um, or something similar. But here's the thing about also about honoring your word. It's not just what you say. It's really more about what you do. Do you walk the talk? Do you act in a manner that you preach? You know, do you make promises 
that you know you never can't keep. And I think for me, that's the distinction. Again, truth and honesty are two different things, and honesty is more about that 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 that's the integrity is being honest. If you make an honest attempt to honor your word or make an honest attempt to fulfill a promise that you made, well, if if you're doing it, if you're doing it right, you've made that promise to someone or even to yourself. Uh, let's not forget the we break more promises to ourselves than we do to anybody else. And these are the things that nobody can see, but they do bear weight on us. That's why it's important to be kind to yourself as often as possible and to be as honest with yourself as you can. You should treat yourself as you're treating other people. And oftentimes we actually do that subconsciously and don't realize it, but, you know, for, for better or for worse. But if you make that promise to yourself or to others with an honest intention, and I don't think breaking that promise is a sin or is not honoring your word. And I say that because, you know, there, this, is, this is what's interesting about responsibility. That's why it's such a big part of everything we do. Because there is also the responsibility of the audience, of who you're talking to, who you're dealing with, who you're making promises to. They also have a responsibility in how they are going to interpret or how they're going to react to what you're saying. If they trust you, if they love you, and if you trust and love yourselves, if you make promises that later you can't keep, well, then you did that in good faith, I think. I don't know if that addresses what you said. I think, I don't, in other words, I don't think a broken promise, a, bro, a broken promise made in good faith is not a sin, something that just happens sometimes. I don't think that counts as breaking your word. Does that, does that kind of touch upon what you're saying? I think, I think so for the most part. Um, you know, I think the extenuating circumstances is also, as I said, the most difficult one because we're all honorable and noble right up to the moment at which we are dealing with an unhinged individual or a person that is not honorable and not noble. And your word may have value to them, but it no longer has value to the world by honoring it to them. Um, and I, I think that will always be the most difficult thing because there's a difference between making a promise and not being able to keep it, as you said. Making a promise you can't keep. And then also making a promise that you know you're not going to keep, but you need to manipulate that individual for the betterment of himself or for the betterment of society. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a gray area. But I think also we like to move – remember I said sort of this – we like boxes. We like to put things in boxes, and we want to put things like honesty and goodness in a box, and we want to put them in the same box. And I think there, there's always going to be that, that gray area where we've got to take it out of that box. The real thing is if you find that that gray area has become your default state, you can no longer claim honesty, and your word no longer has value. Um, my word to most people Ninety-nine percent of the time is gold. 
I'm not going to say that there's not going to be a situation that comes up where I won't lie there. Um, it might become necessary in order to save lives or to protect people. Uh, I won't lie to protect someone's feelings. That's for sure. But to save a life, I will definitely look a lot more like Loki than Thor at the end of the day. But that's, like I said, the extenuating circumstances is the rough one. And it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Like to think about it even. But, well, it depends. I mean, it really depends. And, and we probably won't get past responsibility today. That's my plan is to stick to the responsibility. Eventually, we're going to get to family uh, as one of the, the founding principles. And within family, we discuss loyalty and devotion. And if you've been around for a while, you know that I am fond of saying loyalty as a virtue, not is a virtue, as a virtue, is something that is earned. Each of us have to earn loyalty from each other. We have to do things that make us worthy of that devotion and loyalty. When it comes to honoring your word, keep in mind, too, you do not owe anybody anything that does not deserve it. Now, I'm not saying a stranger because we're supposed to be generous. But I'm talking about somebody who doesn't give a fly and you know what about your word to begin with. If you're dealing with somebody who could care less about what you say, just in general, well, then they aren't worthy of your loyalty or your uh, your word anyway. So, but you wouldn't make promises to them, I guess, anyway. So, you know, I... It's not uncomfortable when you understand and you're, and you're more aware of the world and what's going on, especially within the things you can control. We're, we're fond of talking about our sphere of influence around here. Uh, I think you said it twice today. Uh, so being the example means doing our very best every day. Some days we will fall. Some days we will fail. Some days we'll miss the mark completely. Other days, we'll rock it like a champion. It's not for us to, to, to focus on the goods and the bads. It's just, just to do better every day, or at least try to. That's why I hate that quote from Yoda so much. <laughs> you know the quote, uh, uh, do or do not, there is no try. Um, I don't think the quote's bad. I think the interpretation of the quote is bad uh, by, by a lot of people who don't really understand, I guess, um, because your, your job every day is to try and do better. Um, there are circumstances beyond our control. And this gets back to choice. We can choose to fall victim to that every day, or we can choose to internalize it in a positive way. We really don't have a lot of, we don't really have a lot of choice or, or control over what happens outside of us for the most part. I mean, that, that is up to chaos and chance and whatever else. But you certainly, unless you have some kind of underlying issue uh, that, you, that you get, that, that, uh, some kind of underlying medical or physical issue, but, but mostly, for the most of us, we can control what happens inside us. 
In other words, we can control how we internalize it. So if you missed a mark, uh, which we all do from time to time, Charles, the best thing you could do is just dust yourself off and get up and try again. Try to do better tomorrow. If that doesn't work, well, then try to do it the next day. Just keep trying, doing it until you get it. And even when you become proficient and you become perfect at it, you're still going to fall. That's, that's, that's the trick. You're still going to fall sometimes. You're still going to miss the mark. You're not always going to be able to honor your word. But really at the core, what, what, what it means when I say honor your word is that you are doing your very best every day to do what you say, say what you mean, and do your best to honor that. You know? But don't make promises to people who don't deserve your promises anyway. There are those out there. And I know someone's going to say, well, I thought we're supposed to serve the world with compassion and empathy. We do our best to serve the world with compassion and empathy. But at the end of the day, we are human beings. And all we could do is our best to be better every day. That's all we're trying to say. So let's talk about accountability. We've got uh, 40 minutes left. Let's talk about accountability again. Let's get back to accountability. As I said before, it should be a self-initiating action. I think Charles alluded to this earlier uh, when he said that some people use the idea of responsibility to kind of crush us down. Uh, we see the whole, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what they call it officially, but like the whole accountability model we see at schools and in churches and in, you know, uh, social places like work or whatever. Um, and it works to some degree for some and it doesn't work for others. But when we're talking about accountability, it should be something that we choose to do. A lot of us follow a simple standard of behavior that was defined by the culture we, were, we grew up in or that we live in or conditions of how we were raised, depending on, you know, those kind of influences. Uh, others, a self-defined set of rules on how we conduct ourselves. Others adhere to a certain code of conduct found within a group, an organization, a, a philosophy or religion or whatever. I'm not going to sit here and debate with anybody which of these produces the best kind of people because I think each of these or a combination of these do lead to great people. But one thing we see in some of the best people, some of the people we all admire, is that they are accountable to themselves first, and they're often the most responsible day-to-day -day people. And the reason for this is because when all of those other avenues fail us, when, when, our, when our upbringing fails us, when our, when our codes fail us, when our, when our, you know, the things we've built ourselves around, when they fail us, we always have ourselves to fall back on. That's why it's important to build that foundational understandings within yourself first. To me, this starts with discipline, self-discipline, I should say. When I was in high school, I, I learned the, the, uh, this definition of discipline I'm going to share with you um, at, in my JROTC class. And this kind of started me on the path of, of understanding how, how important self-discipline really is. 
Discipline is a state of an individual's mind, developed in training that leads to self-immunity pride and which results in a willing response to authority or personal initiative where a lack of authority exists. What this, what this means is basically that even when everything is crashing down around you, if you are disciplined, when you are self-disciplined, when no other avenues are left, you still have yourself. You still have that willing response or that personal initiative where any lack of authority or, or other, other may exist. It's not something we're born with. It's something that we learn through training, hard work, perseverance. Discipline is, if you want to master a skill or a trade, you have to have discipline. Without it, you're, going to, you're just going to fail. You're going to fall short. Discipline, someone who's disciplined, it shines through in everything they do out in the world. Uh, it's reflected in the actions they take. It's Oftentimes, one of the first things people will notice about someone, man, that guy is, that guy is solid or, or she really knows, she's really on top of things. She, she is disciplined. Uh, when you see martial artists, you could tell which ones came from, a, from one of those uh, McDojos and which ones came from a good, a, a good traditional school that, that uh, instills discipline in their students. You can see it uh, in, in soldiers. You can see it in our police forces around the world. Some are more disciplined than others. But, but it shows. It's, it's typically something that, that you either have it or you don't, and it shows in everything you do. What's the best way to develop discipline? Well, I'm going to give you a few examples, and then I'll have Charles uh, share his thoughts on uh, on. Like I said, some people learn this in a really good martial arts school where the student is held accountable to strict, to strict uh, standards and training, but not only just training, but conduct. If you want to learn this way, go check out some schools in your area and, and watch not so much how they train or how they practice, but watch how they conduct themselves. Uh, meet, a, meet a student out away from the class and see how they, how they walk and talk. This oftentimes, again, will, will tell you the difference. You'll be able to see the difference between the, the McDojos and the, and the actual good schools. Other people are raised in a household where discipline was taught and reinforced from birth. It was made important and it was evident in everything they did. When you go to school or you go to work, you see people who are just seem to be naturally disciplined. Uh, they may have gotten that from, from their house. They were very, raised in a very disciplined house. A lot of religions and belief systems, uh, clubs and sports, they help uh, build the, the basics of discipline. See, maybe it's a combination of all these things. Uh, and again, I'm not going to debate which one of these make a better disciplined person. I think they all have, I think they all can do the trick. Uh, for me, it was a combination of every single one of these things. I went to a good martial arts school when I was a kid. Uh, my dad was very, very strict. Um, in a lot of ways, and he developed, or he is still disciplined in us, as did my grandparents. Um, I joined the military, of course, and that's, that's where it all came together for me. Um, because if you're not disciplined, then life gets really painful in some of those settings. Uh, 
one thing for certain, anyone who is sound of mind, again, can learn self-discipline as long as they're persistent and willing to shed some blood, sweat, and tears to earn it. Charles, uh, discipline. Now, we're not talking about discipline that leads to blind obedience, which we will get to in a minute. Um, But good old-fashioned, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, uh, stick it out type of discipline. How important is that uh, in these paths or paths that are similar? Well, I think the discipline is, again, one of the cores. I always say it's, this is the core of the path, this is the core of the path. But it is necessary to have discipline to walk these paths and to make differences in the world and to maintain the ability to do so. And I think discipline, a lot of people, even when it's explained to them, they really don't understand it. So I want to hit on what discipline is by hitting on its opposite, its enemy. So the enemy of discipline is distraction. And this is why, you know, you said about martial arts schools, things like that. Uh, I tend to recommend a meditation called Zazen so often that I should have a brochure that I just hand out to people. It'd make my life easier or maybe do like a little audio recording and just play it every time anyone asks anything. But what it is, is it's the act of sitting. And that sounds very easy, and it is. That's why it's used as a meditation method. But the thing about just sitting is that you're not doing anything else. And it teaches the mind to be disciplined into the action of sitting without being distracted. Because distraction is the enemy of discipline. When you are not getting something done in the military because that you were told to do, you face consequences for that because you weren't disciplined because something else distracted you from doing that. Now, that could be that you were tired, that you weren't physically disciplined because you were physically distracted, and therefore you need to focus on that internal reserve of discipline to overcome the body's normal need to distract itself from exhaustion and pain. But more often... You know, from what I understand, from what I understand, I've not been in the military, but boot camp has an amazing ability to give you the energy reserves and the physical strength to achieve what you need to do afterwards. It builds the physical side of discipline and some of the mental, but what most people run into in the military is not a physical discipline issue where they're not strong enough or fast enough to get things done if they get distracted, you know. The beds need to be made a certain way. Things need to be done a certain way. And they get distracted either in their own thoughts or in hanging out with people or any number of activities that happen on base that are not necessarily conducive to getting the bed made, getting their boots polished, and all these other really small things that that distraction takes away from their ability to achieve. And it's important to bring this up because oftentimes being a knight means having the discipline to stay on track to get a task done and not let distraction end our ability to achieve a result. You know, many things take many, many years to achieve at times. If you think about this, Knights of Awakening has been around for 10 years, uh, a little over 10 years now, and we're still going. And We're doing better now than we did in the past year because we have discipline. We've also had a lot of distraction 
we've had to rebuild and rethink our positions and our design. But you could use Knights of Awakening as a living being almost to show what discipline is and also to show what distraction is. And that that's not meant to be a shot at us because um, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone, trust me. I, I don't know how many times I've sat down and said I'm going to do a show today and got distracted. But I also know that and over time, what you've done reinforces what you're doing. And I think if you use that as an example, like I said, you can even treat Knights of Awakening as an entity, and you'll see where recently we've all decided that we were going to focus on this. We geared that internal discipline that we have been using in our day-to-day lives relentlessly, and now we have a show out, two shows, three shows a week sometimes. That's that's a good example of what discipline is. It's that ability to set a course and do a thing. And without that, being a knight winds up being lit service at some point. Because there is no value in saying, I'm going to show up tomorrow and help you with your, with your paving your driveway and to not do it. Not because you couldn't, because something happened, but because you got distracted, you played a video game, you read a book, you watched TV, I don't know. You went skydiving. You did something that wasn't what you said you're going to do. There is no value to the world as a knight without discipline. And again, that's why I preach Zazen so much. And it's why Zazen will always be one of my core practices that I go back to time and again when I need it. Because distraction is the enemy of discipline. And at the end of the day, distraction is far easier to find than that internal reserve. That that's my view on that's this. A good, and I, I wanna, that's a good. I also want to. I, I, I want to apologize. I want to apologize a little because I know I made it sound like I'm picking on us, and I'm not. But I I still think that if you see what happens, like I said, if you watch what happens once Knights Awakening decided we were going to gear up and go in a direction, that's a good example of discipline. It's a good example of being able to take that ability to set a course and go. And I think that a lot of people coming back that listened before won't get that a lot of this downtime has been development in the background. You know, four, five, ten-hour conversations, it seems. I know you and I put, what, upwards of six hours in a night before, back-to-back nights in a row. Easily to figure out how we were going to set the course. And I want people to understand that when I use Knights of Awakening, what you're not seeing is that Knights of Awakening didn't just jump back in and start shows. Knights of Awakening did the equivalent of the weightlifting and the running and all that stuff in the background that you do before you see the prize fight happen. All that you're seeing right now, Justin and I being here, going over these topics, you know, starting to hit these things again, this is not random striking outward in hopes that we're doing something. This is a planned, decided, coordinated effort where we knew what we were going to have to do, that we were going to have to implement our own internal discipline to achieve it, and we said, this is what we want our minimum to be, this is what we want our maximum to be, these are the resources we're going to use, and this is how we're going to do it, and then we did it. And I want people to understand that what you don't see in discipline is often all that stuff behind the scenes in it that allows a person to go 
do that thing. It's not just showing up at someone's home to do the driveway. It's they're rearranging their whole schedule, waking up an hour earlier, uh, maybe doing stretches the day before if they've got, you know, some, some persistent injuries. Yeah, I've got some persistent injuries in my arms and shoulders. And if I know I'm going to help someone do something the day before, I'll grab a set of uh, small, lightweight, free weights and do stretches and extensions with the weights to prepare the muscles and tendons for the next day for the ranges of motion they may not be ready to take. That is what discipline is. It's more than just going and starting the action, and it's more than starting to help with that driveway and then forgetting about it the next day. That's not discipline. But I wanted, I wanted to make sure I was clear you brought up a good point um, that I wanted to touch on. I'm glad you did because uh, before we get too far ahead, I, I, I know that some of this stuff really could come across as being sanctimonious or preachy, like we're taking some kind of moral high ground. Um, and that is not the intent of any of this stuff. It's not the intent of any books we write. It's not the intent of the, the academy once it's once it's finalized, it's not the, the intent of any materials that we create and share. Um, it's not the intent of any posts on, on social media. We're here to explore the idea of the night. Uh, we're here to explore the idea that anyone can embark on a quest to incorporate the idea of the quote-unquote hero into your life, or at least find a, 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 a pathway to betterment. Um, so it does it does come across that way sometimes, and, and bear with us for these first you know couple of weeks because we have to lay this foundational stuff. As I was talking to Charles before the show today, uh, my roadmap to to where I want us to be in by the end of the year is so much more fantastical and and, and less boring and preachy and you know stuff like that. So. Um, none of us are placing ourselves in a position of moral superiority over you or anyone else. Um, as, as we've discussed, we, we're all prone to mistakes and stumbles and falling flat on our face, and we do it all the time. Um, yeah, the KOA has been around for 11 years. Uh, doesn't mean we've been doing 11 years straight. Things come up. Things happen. Burned out. Those of you who have been with us the longest – since day one, you, you, you've seen it. So you know we're not perfect and we're not trying to come across as being that way. So I thank you, Charles, for pointing that out because that, that is very important. Um, some of this can come across as preachy and sanctimonious, and that's not the intent at all. Uh, we're just trying to lay the, the groundwork down um, and explore the idea of, of the quote-unquote night. Uh, another point I want to touch on real quick uh, about the military thing. Uh, in all fairness, military discipline is designed to teach soldiers to follow orders. That's the whole basis of learning discipline there, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. However, that can lead to uh, something that is more akin to blind obedience. Uh, discipline is good, but like with anything, Taken to the extreme, you may find yourself moving away from your intentions and away from this path altogether. 
if you're just blindly following a group or a leader or a path, especially those that ultimately lead to hate and suffering. And this gets back into being overly loyal. And we'll get to that later, uh, probably next week, when we do the show on family. There's a theme here at the KOA that, is, especially when I'm when I'm hanging out with Charles, uh, and 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 when when we do the the nightly agreements, you're going to see a theme there because we're going to talk about what's great about the agreements, but we're also going to talk about the the, the quote unquote dark side of them too. If you go um, too far with things, they lose their value as a virtue, and they can become something horrible. Same thing with discipline; it can become blind obedience. There's a lot of examples throughout history. The most prominent example most people think of is the German soldiers of World War II. They were killing millions, they were slaughtering millions of people without any consequence for the most part, at least it seemed that way, uh, simply because they were quote-unquote ordered to. Many of them documented this when they were captured by the Allies. They, They asked them, why did you do this? Well, it was, it was following orders, just following orders. Uh, just about every country, every civilization, past or present, has similar claims, to be honest. Virtually no single country or people can say that their civilization has not at some point done great and terrible harm to each other, to other human beings, because of this phenomenon of blind obedience. Now, Justin, those are extreme examples. Why would you have to go to the extreme? Because there are so many examples in history that we cannot ignore the significance of this phenomenon because it happens. It has happened. It did happen. It does happen. It will happen again if we're not careful. The ultimate goal of following this path, if you're going to follow it the way that we lay out foundationally, is to, to, be, to, to try and serve each other with as much compassion and sympathy as possible. Charles, blind obedience. I, I have people criticize me at times because they, they say, well, you go to the extreme. You, what, that's, those are really extreme examples. But really, there are so many examples of this phenomenon of blind obedience that it cannot be ignored and it should not be ignored and it should be remembered forever uh, or else we, uh, we're doomed to repeat it. Well, I, I think with blind obedience, well, the extreme examples are very important, but I think we need to actually look at these more honestly. I don't think we look at blind obedience honestly. I think we like to look at it and say there's this phenomenon where someone says, well, I was just following orders. And, you know, I used to work retail. I used to work at a grocery store, and I've now been out of that line of work long enough that I can use the words grocery store. And if someone wanted to track down what store it was, they could and would know about the place that I worked and all of the good and bad that was there. And there were some good. We had some really great people there. And we had some royal a-holes that I worked for at different points. And not so much with, but uh, some of the people that made it in the management were not not really very, very nice. And some of our customers were even worse. And some of my managers were people that if they called me up today, I'd be trying to find a plane ticket to Maryland so I could go help them stop shelves because they were that good. I'd be like, yeah, 
If you'll pay for the plane ticket in the hotel, I'll get up there and throw some cans up with you for old time's sake. Um, God, I hope they don't hear that. If they do, I've got a trip to schedule. Um, but realistically, I, w- I would often run into situations when I worked the service desk where we would have company procedure. And I'd say, well, we've got to do this because this is our store procedure. And I had I run into this more than once where someone let me go, oh, so you're just following orders. And I had to stop myself one time from saying, I had stopped myself. It went through my head. Understand, I did not say this. I would have been reprimanded or fired or, or I don't know, probably set out to roast in the sun or something when it was hot. They, they, a punishment would have been delivered for sure. But I had to stop myself from saying, look, I am not going to make my life worse in this, on this thing that determines whether or not I eat tomorrow to make your life better, when in the long run, they're just going to do it anyway. They're going to do things via the procedure anyway. I had to stop myself from saying that. And when you were talking about those extreme situations, I think we really need to look at those points in history and recognize that for a lot of people, they didn't have the mental dexterity or the opportunities to oppose the system they were in. The just following orders one, the one we always associate with that is Nazi Germany, Hitler, and the camps. And yeah, you could make the choice to not follow orders and to pull out your sidearm and shoot the person right next to you who is your superior. You will get shot. Your family will be killed for sure, okay? There's no doubt in this. They're going to make an example of you. Or you can just follow orders. Now, where this starts to break down is people in the field when they were captured or had opportunities to surrender and didn't. And that sounds very funny that I make that comparison the way I do. And I want to, I want to hit on this for, his, for history's sake. A lot of times just following orders, a lot of times blind obedience is not blind obedience. It is pretending to be blind because the alternative would rack the person. But you also have blind obedience as well. We have examples of it where soldiers fought to the death to protect prison camps. And, you know, I got to say, as the kind of person I am, but having been raised in the United States and having lived free and, and strong and having had some experience with fighting, so I know that I don't back down from, you know, the risk of death at least. I have to say that if I was a soldier, yeah, I might fight because I was told I had to or I'd die. But when I seen these people coming up to, you know, take this camp, I might drop my firearm and trip and land upon the ground face down because I wasn't fighting for what I wanted to fight for. In fact, I could almost guarantee you I would drop my weapon and trip and land face down, possibly with my hands even behind my head. I have this unique difficulty when I trip and fall. And for those people, that just following orders falls into blind obedience because they were in a position during that point during the liberation of camps where they fought, and there's the blind obedience kicking in, but then on the other side of that, I would, I, I tend to believe that a lot of the people that we think of as the worst, which are the guys that pulled the levers, uh, and I don't mean at the top. 
I mean, like the people that physically pulled levers in gas chambers, people that marched people into them. I believe a lot of those people didn't dissent and didn't escape because they couldn't. And those people were in a terrible situation in which it was a choice between a stranger's life and their own and their family's, and they made a selfish choice, not blindly, but in order to deal with it, they created the illusion of the blind self. And I think that's just as dangerous. Don't get me wrong. I'm not justifying that action. But I don't think we can call it blind obedience. Then. I think we got to call it what it is. And that's the choice to be blind. Now, by that, contra- by that contact, uh, contrast, a lot of people that were on the front lines knew what they were fighting for and what they were protecting, especially if they were protecting a camp. And it is much, much easier to just say, guys, we know it's wrong. Put the weapons outside, and we will lay down. And when when the Brits and the Americans and the Canadians roll on in, we will be waiting for them, and this camp will get taken with a no loss of life on either side, or minimal loss of life. That's doable. That's possible. And I think a lot of people had been indoctrinated into that blind obedience at that point. But given some of the journals and some of the books that people kept about the horrors they witnessed and how it it wrenched their soul, and they said, I have to follow orders, though. I have to follow orders. I think at that point they created, as I I said, the blind persona, if you will, uh, the blind aspect of the self as a safety measure to save their own sanity at least as much as they could. And I won't call it right. But I'll say that within the world, we've got to look at those things and recognize that there's a difference between blind obedience and purposefully acting in a blind fashion, knowing that you've made a selfish choice. And I'm not going to measure the judgment call on it. I'm not going to weigh their soul against a feather. Because I wasn't there. But what I will do is I'll say that in understanding that difference and by using what they went through and the history of it, we can then apply that to ourselves and ask when it, when we're doing something on habit, which is that blind obedience, we followed orders for so long, we just follow them now. And when we have purposefully blinded ourselves, I can tell you, working as a cashier, a service desk associate, I definitely didn't even blind myself. I recognized I was making a selfish choice because I recognized that all other choices within the system wound up within within the same result, whether or not the person liked it, whether or not that was convenient or helpful to them, or even if I felt that the choice was right at the time. That there was it wasn't so much a blind obedience, but it was a recognition of where choices go to. And that's that's taking something from the extreme and helping me look at the mundane, but I can tell you also that when I finally had moved myself into a position where I could leave, that too weighed on me when I had the opportunity to leave that type of an environment that I would no longer have to be blindly obedient to anyone or give the illusion of blind obedience, even though I knew I was making a preference choice uh, for my happiness over someone else's. 
And to be really clear, I never was in life or death choice situations, but there's a lot of stuff on a uh, service desk, especially concerning things like Western Union, where you have a protocol that you have to follow and you do not have the luxury of not following it, even if that means someone doesn't get money that they need at that moment or paperwork can't be processed because, yeah, you can sign it, but it will come back on you definitely the next day. There is no, there is no faking anything in Western Union. There is nothing that can be done uh, to not have all the information there. You can process it without it, but you cannot avoid the repercussion upon yourself. And I, I use all of that as an example because I don't agree with the system being set up like that, even if it is legal and it is sound. Um, I always felt that if a system like that doesn't have the authority of a store owner to have it, to make decisions on it, it shouldn't be in the store. But that's personal. That's getting into that. Um, I'm going to stop myself before I ramble and wrap that part up real quick and just say that it's important to see the difference between blind obedience and making a selfish choice because one of those is habit. And you need to be able to pick that up and know when, when you're doing it and why and counteract it so you don't do it by accident. The other is conscious, and you cannot allow yourself to let yourself believe that you are blind and that you were just following orders when you knew your decisions. Take responsibility, hey, right? Take responsibility for who you decided to be at that moment. And recognize that sometimes taking responsibility is saying, yeah, I decided that my welfare was worth more than this other person's convenience. Yeah, but you know what? Let's let's be honest. I mean, whether it's a conscious decision to be obedient or to be overly disciplined, they still did it. Whether it's conscious or not, they still did it. Um, and it was at the point of accountability to where the statement was, I was just following orders. And we could talk about that, you know, for hours probably. But at the end of the day, anything that we would consider a, a quote-unquote virtue can be taken to the extreme, even something as even something as foundational as discipline. There's lots of examples in the world to that. Uh, so I think we're gonna we're gonna end it there. We're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna keep it to responsibility this time. Next show we'll do respect. Uh, maybe maybe get through respect and fairness. Family is kind of a big one for me, so I like want to spend more time on that too. But I'm going to leave you all with this: obstacles are necessary for growing along your path. Do not treat them as bad or as a nuisance. Instead, treat them as opportunities to be better than you were before you found them. Do not give away your power to control your feelings and emotions to another. It is better left to you. You most often cannot control what happens outside of yourself, but you can work to control how you internalize it. I love you all very much, and until next time, awaken the night within. <laughs>